I am a new creation in Christ. Man, the old man is dead. That needs a bigger amen. The new has come. But every once in a while, I go and I try to resurrect that old man. Yeah, I had one amen. Thank you for being honest, right? Right. Oh, yeah, you know, we try to keep, keep that old man down. I pray all the time, Lord, put a guard on my lips, put a lock on my tongue. But every once in a while, that old man comes alive. One time that it came alive was when I was driving my mom to the hospital. Now, let me, before I get there, though, let me just say this. See, sometimes I'll raise different old men, right? Sometimes I raise the old complainer right? Sometimes I'll raise the old gossip. Sometimes I'll raise the old pity me, pity me, poor me guy, right? But I have an old guy that I can raise that almost none of you can. And that's because I come by it very honestly. You see, I was raised in a home and I have the genes of New York City Italians. So I can raise up that New York City Italian. I'm going to tell you about a time when I did that. So I was driving my mom to the hospital. This was one of those times where she had had a lot of blood loss. And every time that happened, it could have been her last time. And we're driving to the hospital and she thought for sure this was going to be her, her, last, her last time for living. And so she, she asked me, she said, when I die, will Matthew, that's my oldest son, will he take over my apartment? And I said, yeah, mom, he, he'll probably move in there. And she thought for a while and then she said, well, tell him to keep it yellow. And so I, now I knew what she meant. She meant like, I love the color. You know, thank you for painting it my favorite color. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm not ready to go yet. I, I'm loving life still and I'm not ready to go yet. But if I have to go, that was a joy for me. Well, I didn't quite respond to that because what I heard was, was keep my room yellow. And so I pulled out that old Italian and I said, Ma, you gotta be kidding me. I said, here, you're, you know, you're dying and your last words to my son, your grandson are keep the room yellow. Like you couldn't say, you know, stay close to the Lord. Ironic that I should be saying that at this moment. Uh, you know, live for the Lord, give everything to Jesus. No, keep the room yellow. That's what she says. Well, I of course, you know, felt bad about that afterwards. And I put that, put that guy way back down and try to keep him there for the rest, rest of the time. We understand each other because she, she grew up with that. She talked like that to me, and that doesn't excuse it, though, right? <laughs> doesn't excuse it. Uh, so parting words, parting words, really important. Today we're going to start John chapter 13, and these are Jesus' parting words to his disciples. Up to this point in the Gospel of John, we've had, had his public ministry. We have seen great miracles, miracles like turning water into wine, Jesus walking on the water, the, the healing of the blind man, raising Lazarus from the dead. We've heard great conversations, conversations like Jesus with the Samaritan woman or Jesus with, with Nicodemus when he talks about being born again. We've heard Jesus' great proclamations when he said, I am the bread of life, or I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the, the resurrection and the life. But all of that has stopped. 
we now enter into a room where Jesus is alone with his 12 disciples, and the next five chapters of the Gospel of John are devoted to telling us what he said in that room. Five chapters, that's almost a quarter of the Gospel of John. The Holy Spirit has given this special attention and wants us to give it special attention. So today we're going to start that by reading John chapter 13. Open up in your Bibles as I read. I'm reading from the ESV today. This is John chapter 13. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and took a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put his outer garments on and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, but whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, this would be the Apostle John, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
Then after he had taken this, this morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Judas was telling him, buy, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. This is how Jesus starts off his parting words to his disciples. I want you to picture what's, what's going on here. We have a table that's in three pieces. There's, it's shaped like a U, one, two, and three. And on the outside of that table are large cushions. And the people who are sitting at the table aren't really sitting at the table. They're actually lying on the cushions. They would be lying like this on the cushion, their feet hanging off the back of the cushion, and they would be eating with their right hand. I know some of you probably can't see me, but I'm here. And so Jesus is here. Let's say if I'm Jesus. So we know that John was right here because at one point it said that John leaned his head back against Jesus' chest and asked him, who is it who will betray you? So there was a closeness there. And then there's a person here, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But this is the scene that's, that's going on. And this is what we have happening here. The passage started out by saying that it was just before the Passover. And I think John is not just giving us a setting. He's telling us that over this whole scene looms the cross. After this meal and after Jesus has the Lord's Supper with them, Jesus will go out to the garden to pray. A mob will come and arrest him. He will be dragged to several trials where he will be falsely accused. Then he'll be taken to the place called Golgotha where he'll be nailed to a cross and he will die by that cross. And then after that, he will suffer separation from God, his own father. In the shadow of all that, this act that we just read about, washing Jesus' feet, has so much significance because it it tells us, first of all, about the extent of Jesus' love, that he would be willing to do that. And it tells us that it's a prophetic sign. Jesus doing that is actually showing us that he will be doing what he will be doing on the cross, that he will be getting up, he'll be raising up and coming away from his position as the head, as the lead, and he will take the position of the lowest servant and give himself up for everybody else. And he also, in doing this, he sets a pattern for us to follow. And so what we have here in this scene that we just read about is the very picture of what Jesus is about to go do, and that is to die on the cross for every one of his disciples and for everyone in the world, whoever would receive him. That's what he was about to do. Now, when I first start studying a passage, one of the first things I looked for is repeated words. And you should know that... that, um, 
when you go to study a Bible, when you read a passage, instead of just reading it once, read it a couple of times and ask yourself, are there any repeated words here? And all of a sudden, things start to jump out. So I noticed right away when I read this that there was a repeat of the word know, K-N-O-W, or new or knowing, different forms of that word. And we see the first time that that word appears is in the very first verse, in G- verse 1 of chapter 13. It says, Jesus knew that his time had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Now, earlier, like in the chapter where we read about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, his disciples were afraid to go back to Bethany. They said, no, because they're going to kill you in Bethany. And Jesus said, no, my time has not come yet. He knew his time wasn't, wasn't there. But now, at this point, Jesus knows his time has come. Now is the time that he had been waiting for. Waiting for because it was what his whole purpose for coming to earth was all about. He had waited 33 years for this moment. He had been preparing for 33 years for this moment. But could could he really be prepared? I mean, he knew what was coming. It says he knew his time had come. Listen to what the Old Testament said that Jesus would have to face. Jesus was well aware of this said that he must be wounded for our transgressions, that he must be crushed for our sins, that he would bear our griefs and sorrows. And Jesus knew that he would be stricken and completely rejected by his father. The fact that Jesus knew what was ahead for him and still went through with it is an amazing thing. Verse 11 gives us another one of these words. Verse 11 says, Jesus knew who was to betray him. Judas. Judas. The world's most famous perpetrator. His name has come to equate betrayal. When you say Judas, immediately you think betrayal. It's interesting that Jesus knew who would betray him, and yet, we see all throughout the ministry, he never acted any differently to Judas than he did to the other 12. And even on this night, we're gonna look at three things that Jesus does to show that he is still giving Judas a chance. You see, when Jesus was laying down here like this and John was here, there's a strong possibility, we don't know for sure, the Bible doesn't say it directly, that the other position of honor was here and that that was given to Judas. So John was on Jesus' right, a position of of honor, and Judas on Jesus' left, another position of honor. Now, why we think this is, because Jesus has this intimate conversation with him, and it probably couldn't have happened if Judas was across the table. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew says that at one point, when the disciples asked, well, Jesus, who is going to betray you? Judas turns to Jesus and says, surely not I. Can you imagine the betrayal? Can you imagine the the treachery? Surely not I. And Jesus looks at him and says, it is you. And this conversation must have been done privately because the other disciples still did not know that Judas was going to be the betrayer. Even when he got up to leave, they still did not know it. So there's a strong chance that Jesus had given Judas the position of honor at his left-hand side. And also that position, to me, I, I think this not only shows that Jesus was honoring this man and saying, 
stay with me, Judas. But it allowed for intimacy, just as John was able to just lean his head back on Jesus and talk to Jesus that closely, right from, from his chest. Jesus could do the same with Judas. Judas is here. Jesus could just rest back on Judas and say, yes, it is you. And that intimacy of Jesus being close to Judas's heart and the, the conversation that must have taken place at the table, I did, to me, that is... It's just amazing to think, what did Jesus say? Even if it wasn't spoken out loud, what was spoken was, Judas, I love you. I'm still honoring you. There's still a chance for you. Turn, turn from what you're going to do. Jesus also washed Judas's feet. Judas was one of the 12. So Jesus gets up from his position in the middle of the meal, okay, the meal, right in the middle of the meal. The disciples have no idea what's going on. He gets up and he goes and he washes the feet and Judas is one of the people. Jesus explains, he says, that the one who will betray me, he says from the Psalms, it says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Think about this. The heel is the heel of Judas, who is against Jesus. Jesus just washed that heel. Jesus just washed the feet of the one who earlier in the week reported to the religious leaders, I'll give you, the, I'll give you his location, pay me for it. And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. Jesus just washed the feet of the one who just after this was going to go and report where Jesus was. Jesus just washed the feet of the one who was going to lead a mob to get Jesus and arrest him. Jesus washed Judas' feet. How? <laughs> How did Judas not break at that point? How did his heart not break? Can you picture Judas looking down, looking back at Jesus washing his feet? What was he thinking? How did he do it? After Jesus washed their feet, he said, if you do these things, in other words, if you serve others in this way, blessed are you when you do them. It's as if he's saying, Judas, if you want to be blessed, you still, you can do this. You can serve instead of murder. You can serve instead of betray. Constantly giving Judas that chance, that opportunity. And then finally, we see that Jesus shares that piece of bread. This also when it is an act of honor. When the host of this table set up will offer a piece of bread to one of the guests, it was an act of honoring that guest. So Jesus says, it's the one that I'll dip my, my bread and share my bread with. He dips it in the sauce and he reaches over and gives it to Judas. Another reason why we think Judas was probably given that seat of honor. Do you see how, what Jesus is doing here? Do you see how he's just offering one time after another to Judas, turn, turn back. Leave what you're going to do. Leave it. But Judas was resolute. And you see the irony in here? That the betrayed should befriend the betrayer? That the one who forgives 
should forgive the sinner who's running away from him. There was another thing that Jesus knew. In verse three, it says that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. This is an expression that means that Jesus knew he had all authority and power. At this point, Jesus had at his, at his availability anything and everything he could use to stop the process. With one word, he could stop the Jews from prosecuting. With one word, he could stop the Romans from persecuting him. With one word, he could have stopped Judas. He could have stopped the mob. He even said, I could call down thousands of angels to stop what's going on right now. But he doesn't. So when you put this together, we see that that Jesus knew his betrayal was at hand. He knew his death was coming, death by crucifixion. He knew he would experience complete separation from his father, and he had all the power in the world and beyond our world to stop it, and he didn't. He didn't do that. And verse one tells us why. It says because he was about to show them the full extent of his love. Jesus loved that much. He loved you and me that much that though he could have stopped it in an instant, he went through it, knowing full well was what, what was ahead of him. He was no victim here. He was no victim. He went and did this on his own for us. So now let's get back to the narrative. So we have Jesus and the 12 disciples eating, eating at this table. And in the middle of the meal, all of a sudden Jesus gets up. Wait, what, what, what's he doing? Why is he getting up? And he takes off his outer robe and he grabs a towel and wraps it around his middle. What, what's he doing? What was he doing? And he goes and he pours water in. Oh no, oh no, is he gonna wash? Oh, he's gonna wash our feet. How embarrassing. We should, where's the servant? There should be a servant to do that. Maybe, maybe John, the youngest disciple, maybe he should do that. Jesus, this is wrong. You shouldn't do this. But we don't know if anything was said. The Bible indicates nothing. What it indicates is that Jesus came back to the back of the cushion and knelt down and one by one washed the feet of each disciple. And he crawled on his knees probably to the next disciple, washed his feet, did they stay in stu stunned silence? Was there conversation? We don't know. Again, there's no indication, but it seems like there was no record of any conversation until he gets to Peter. And Peter blurts out, you, my feet? I don't think so. That is not happening. Not here, Lord. You are not gonna wash my feet. Now, Peter didn't say that because his feet were ticklish. And he didn't say that because he thought his feet were too clean to be washed. He knew his feet were dirty. But there was a proper order here. Lord, you're not in order. You're out of order. We're supposed to wash your feet. You should sit down. Let us do that. Let's stop it right now. Let's get back into order. And Jesus, so patient with Peter, says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, the fellowship between us isn't what it should be unless I do this for you. So then in Peter fashion, he says, well, then not just my feet. How about my hands? How about my head? I'll, I'll jump in the basin. 
Let me get in that basin. I want fellowship with you. I'll do everything, Lord. You have to love Peter, right? I mean, he's all or nothing. He's all or nothing. But don't you just want to say, Peter, would you just shut up? Would you just stop and let Jesus do what he's supposed to do? And then I say, John, would you just stop and let Jesus do what he's supposed to do? You know, in our kinds of churches, we like to emphasize that as believers, we should be serving, right? We should, we should be serving in the church. We should be serving our community. We're service-oriented, and, and that's right. We should be, right? And in fact, this passage is going to tell us more about that. But at this point, the disciples were being served by Jesus. You know, Jesus came to serve us. Now, sometimes our kinds of church don't like to say that because we live in a time where a lot of churches are preaching that this is all about me, that following the Lord means I'm going to be happy. Following the Lord means I'm going to be victorious. Following the Lord means I get served. And that does not happen here because that is not the gospel. But it is true that Jesus came to serve us and Jesus still serves us even though he's not present with us. We'll talk more about that next week. But he, he still serves us. He's still forgiving us. He's still strengthening us and encouraging us and building us and leading us. He's always ministering to us. So sometimes I think I just need to stop and let him do what he's supposed to do. Just let Jesus wash my feet. We call him Lord and Master. Can you picture yourself in the position of sitting down, Jesus at your feet, your Lord and Master at your feet, washing your feet? It's almost embarrassing. Like I can't even, I don't even want to picture it. It's almost too hard to picture but that's what he wants to do. You see, Jesus is doing a work in your life and in my life. He's doing a work. And we have to sit still and let him do that work in our lives. We need to let him do that. Jesus clarifies this for Peter too. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet. So he's not talking about clean feet. We, you're getting that, right? There's, there's more than just about feet here, right? He's not talking about clean feet. This is about restored relationship to Jesus. Sharing with him, being in a sharing mode with him. Believer, you have been washed. Hear these verses. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you, Jesus said. And it says, we are cleansed by the washing of water with the word. The work of salvation has cleansed you. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are clean. Your sins are forgiven. Amen? Amen. That's right. Your sins are forgiven. You're clean. You don't have to beg for forgiveness. You don't have to do anything to earn it. Jesus did it all. Amen. He did the work. By shedding his blood on the cross, we have been cleansed by his blood. We've been bathed. But he says, but if you've been bathed, it's only your feet that need 
to be clean. So what's he talking about here? So in that day, uh, we didn't have bathtubs in our homes, right? So if we needed to bathe, we would go to the public house, and at the public house, there'd be a big old bath, and people would be in there all together cleaning themselves. And then after I was done getting clean, I'd put my clothes back on, put my sandals back on, and then I'd walk to wherever I was going to fellowship, whether it be back to my home and fellowship with my family or to a friend's home, fellowship at their home. But by the time I got there, even though I was clean, my feet in my sandals would be dirty because of the dust and the mud that I had walked through. So before I could enter into fellowship with that person, I needed to wash my feet. Before I could go in their home, I needed to wash my feet for fellowship. Well, that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, even though you've, all, you've been bathed, you, you're, you've been forgiven, you're clean, you're cleansed by salvation, by his blood on the cross, still we need to go to him for daily stuff. You know, in, during the day, we pick up dirt, don't we? We sin every day. Every day there's, there's sin, sin that comes up. And, and this is talking about going in a fresh way to Jesus and just saying to him, Lord, I've sinned again. I'm not talking about just saying, Lord, I confess my sins and move on. I'm talking about grappling with the Lord over the ways that you've abandoned him or denied him or hurt him or whatever and restoring that fellowship. See, Jesus is doing this because he's all about fellowship with us. He doesn't want anything between us. He has forgiven us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive and that applies to this. And so I ask myself and I ask us here, how many of us really spend time grappling with the Lord about our sins? We know we're forgiven. We know it. We know we're secure in our salvation. But Lord, there's something between us. There's something that's gotten in the way of my fellowship with you. And I want to come and talk to you about that, Lord. And Jesus smiles and washes my feet again. How often does unconfessed sin get in the way of our relationship with Jesus? How often do we allow guilt or pride or just maybe, maybe even a low view or may I should say a too high of a view of our sin? You know, I'm not talking about big sins for, for believers that have been believers a long time, right? There shouldn't be these big sins, but we have a lot of respectable sins, don't we? Sins that we kind of, kind of wink at. That's what we're talking about here. Those sins stand in the way of my relationship with Jesus. He says, bring them to me. I'll wash your feet. I'll wash you clean once again. We'll fellowship again. I want to have that intimacy with you. And believer, if your feet are in the basin, then they're not walking somewhere else, walking away from the Lord or doing something else. When Jesus is washing our feet, we're nowhere else but where we need to be, letting him do the work in our lives. Oh, I wish we were all like Peter, so eager. Well, yeah, Lord, I'll jump in that basin. But instead I come like, do I really have to do it? Okay, I'll put my toe in. It's not what the Lord wants. He wants me to be like, yes, Lord, I'm in. I'm all in, all in. I'm in constant need. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus for that forgiveness and for that constant restoration of your relationship with him. I love that he wants that. 
Why would he want it from me? But he does. He does. Ah, final point. I want to draw your attention to, to verses 12 to 16. It says, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash my feet. Does it say that? No. It should say that, shouldn't it? Right? Okay, Jesus, you wash my feet, I'll wash your feet. No, 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 no. He says, I'll wash your feet. Now you're equipped to go wash other people's feet. So what is this talking about? He's, he's talking about, I've forgiven you. Now you have the forgiveness to give to others. You can do this. You can move on to others. He says, for I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. We are the servants. He's the master. A messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. We're the messengers. He's the one who sent him. So he's greater than us. He says, so truly, you're not greater than I am. And yet look at what I have done for you. And he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So, He's talking about a paradigm shift here. We, we, we get to thinking in just natural ways. But Jesus is talking about something here that's very radical, very different than what comes natural for us. And rather than, than try to define it, I'm just going to put words to it here. I'm your pastor. I'm your servant. I'm your husband. I'm your servant. I'm your child. I'm your servant. I'm your coworker. I'm your servant. I'm your friend. I'm your servant. What would your home look like? Seriously, what would your home look like if you stopped striving and started serving? What if on your way home from work, you were praying, Lord, I have given everything I had today. I've been with people all day. I have nothing else to give. And I know when I go home, there's people waiting for me. What if when you walked in that door, you said, Lord, help me to be a minister to these people. I've got nothing left, but I want to serve. What if you've been home all day, if, if, if you're uh, um, you know, somebody who, who doesn't work and you've been home all day and you've been dealing with, with home things and at the end of the day, Lord, I've got nothing left, but I do have something left because you've called me to serve. Help me to serve. I think our homes would look really different. What about work? What if, now you might not want to say this to your boss, but what if you started thinking of your boss as, you know what, boss? I'm going to stop complaining about you. I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve my job that I don't like. I'm going to serve because that's what Jesus did for me. What about church? I know in a church this size, we have, you know, all kinds of relationships, I'm sure there are relationships that are broken in this church. Now, this church is a serving church. I think I, I've never counted here, but, you know, the, the what do they say? The average church has like 5% of the people who actually serve. I think our average is much higher than that. 
We love that you love to serve. We have a, a very active church. But I'm not talking about that kind of serving. I'm talking about serving one another. What if in that broken relationship, you've said, I know you've offended me, but I'm your servant. I will serve you anyway. What if we stopped demanding to be served and started serving? Are you willing to work toward the restoration? See, Jesus saying, come to me, restore your relationship with me. And then when you do that, now you're equipped to do it for others. So this is not just a good idea, right? He says, you're blessed if you do it. See, it's just a good, I should say, it is just a good idea if you don't do it. But if you actually do it, he says you'll be blessed, meaning you'll be happy. The word blessed just means happy. So let's put it this way. Do you want blessing in your life? Start serving. You want a happy home? Start serving. You want to be happier at work? Start serving. It's upside down, isn't it? It's just not the way we think. Jesus just turns everything upside down. You want joy in relationships? and stop demanding and start serving. It's so appropriate that today we come to the Lord's Supper. I, you know, it happened right after this, uh, this event when Jesus washed their feet, the, Jesus had the Lord's Supper with them. And as we move to this though, I, it's, it's just significant because when we come to the Lord's table, we are not only just celebrating the fact that Jesus died on the cross and gave us salvation. But he asks us to examine ourselves. Well, why do we have to examine ourselves? If he's already forgiven us, why should I examine myself? Well, I should because he says, there's dirt on your feet. You've got that daily dirt that you just need to come, talk to me about, bring it to the Lord. And so that's what we do when we examine our hearts and then we celebrate communion. We take the bread and we take the cup We do that because when we do that, we're saying, Lord, I want to make all things right with you again. If this is out of order or this isn't right, Lord, I want to get this right again. Get back on track. I need that. I'm like that, you know, I'm like a bowling ball that when they have the bumpers down, I'm bumping from side to side. I need something to help me stay on. That's what communion is all about, right? Staying on track staying on track. And it's significant too because Jesus says, just as I have done this for you, now go and do this with others. And communion is about that too, isn't it? Because we do this together as a family, all right? This is for anybody who is a believer, not just the believers here of this church, but anybody who's a believer celebrates communion. And we do this. And as we do this, Jesus is saying, I have forgiven you. Now you have what it takes to go and forgive others. I have served you. Now you have what it takes to serve others. I have strengthened you. Now go strengthen others. And this is what we do when we celebrate this together corporately as a body here. 